0: listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 80. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Thank you so much for giving me your time and attention today. Before we begin, if you would like to buy me a cup of coffee or support the podcast, you can go to Anchor FM and click the support button. Otherwise, just share the show with friends and family and keep the conversation going. That being said, thank you to everybody who does support the show, and thank you to everyone who listens, and welcome to all new listeners to the show. Today on the podcast, I wanted to read about the tale of Siegfried and Fafnir, because at this point, you might be tired of me talking about Beowulf all the time. And I thought, well, let's shift gears to an epic poem from the poetic Edda, that is almost as famous as Beowulf, and that is the story of Siegfried. Siegfried, or Sigurd in the old Norse, he is a heroic figure amongst both the Norse and the Germanic peoples, but his stories in the Germanic and Norse traditions, they vary to a certain degree in either tradition, but in both Germanic and Norse traditions, Norse literature, he does play a part specifically in the story of Brunhild in which he meets his death, but then in other stories he is the leading character and he triumphs and is victorious in all that he does. Something that's common in both the Germanic and Norse tales of Siegfried or Sigurd is the fact that he has outstanding strength and courage, a kind of Hercules, if you will. In one story, the one that I want to dig into today, he fights with the dragon, Fafnir. And in another story, he acquires a treasure from two brothers who quarrel over their inheritance. And then these two stories, where he fights the dragon and he acquires this treasure from the two brothers, they're combined into one tale in the Norse poetic Edda. And there, there, the details are worked out. And then in the Germanic literature, these two stories are separate. And why this is and how these traditions differ and how they branched apart over time, we don't really know. We don't have primary sources that can link the two traditions together. But for the most part, Siegfried is most well-known in Western literature because of the part he plays in the uh, which is old material, old Germanic. And these come from Das Lied vom Hürnen Seyfried. There you go. That's over a decade of German classes for you. (laughs) But it isn't really until 1500 or so that Siegfried pops up amongst the Germanic peoples as a popular legend. Not that it wasn't there before. It's just more publicized because, of course, in the 1490s, you have Gutenberg and the printing press coming around which then makes these oral traditions more available to the reading public, to the broader public. And therefore, the tales of Siegfried and the Nibelung in Lied and the sagas, these all pick up um, traction then, especially in the 1500s, because of the advent of the printing press. And so in the Adas, though, in the poetic Edda and the prose Edda, he is a part of the legend of the Valkyries, because it's actually Sigurd, Siegfried in German, who awakens a Valkyrie maiden from a sleep that she has been placed into um, as a kind of charm that's been cast over her. And this leads to the story of Brunhild, who is put to sleep by Odin, because he basically pricks her with this thorn that has this charm, this potion on it, and then she is asleep, and she's waited upon by these handmaidens, and yet she's surrounded by fire, and there's a dragon, and Siegfried has to be brave enough and courageous enough to defeat the dragon and walk through the fire and awaken her with a kiss. And many of these things might sound familiar because it's the premise for Sleeping Beauty. So that being said, then, that's the background. I'll include a link in the show notes to the Gutenberg Project, which publishes the story of Siegfried that is translated by James Baldwin, not the civil rights advocate and writer James Baldwin, but the late 1800s translator of the sagas, James Baldwin, so that you can read this for yourself. Otherwise, all of these are available on Amazon.com, most in Kindle format and also in softcover. So let's get after it. This is the story of Siegfried, This is his fourth adventure, and it recounts how he defeated Fafnir, the dragon. Regan took up his harp, and his fingers smote the strings, and the music which came forth sounded like the wail of the winter's wind through the dead treetops of the forest. And the song which he sang was full of grief, and wild, hopeless yearning for the things which were not to be. When he had ceased, Siegfried said, that was indeed a sorrowful song for one to sing who sees his hopes so nearly realized. Why are you so sad? Is it because you fear the curse which you have taken upon yourself? Or is it because you know not what you will do with so vast a treasure, and its possession begins already to trouble you? Oh, many are the things I will do with that treasure, answered Reagan, and his eyes flashed wildly, and his face grew red and pale. I will turn winter into summer. I will make the desert places glad. I will bring back the golden age. I will make myself a god. For mine shall be the wisdom and the gathered wealth of the world. And yet I fear. What do you fear? The ring. The ring, it is accursed. The Norns, too, have spoken, and my doom is known. I cannot escape it. The Norns have woven the woof of every man's life, answered Siegfried. Tomorrow we fare to the glittering heath, and the end shall be as the Norns have spoken. And so... Early the next morning, Siegfried mounted Greyfell and rode out toward the desert land that lay beyond the forest and the barren mountain range. And Regin, his eyes flashing with desire, and his feet never tiring, trudged by his side. For seven days they wended their way through the thick green wood. "'sleeping at night on the bare ground beneath the trees, "'while the wolves and other wild beasts of the forest "'filled the air with their hideous howlings. "'But no evil creature dared come near them "'for fear of the shining beams of light "'which fell from grey fells' gleaming mane. "'On the eighth day they came to the open country, "'to the hills where the land was covered "'with black boulders and broken, by yawning chasms. And no living thing was seen there, not even an insect, nor a blade of grass. And the silence of the grave was over all. And the earth was dry and parched, and the sun hung above them like a painted shield in a blue-black sky. And there was neither shade nor water anywhere. But Siegfried, rode onwards in the way which Regan pointed out and faltered not, although he grew faint with thirst and with the overpowering heat. Towards the evening of the next day they came to a dark mountain wall which stretched far out on their hand on either side and rose high above them so steep that it seemed to close up the way and to forbid them going farther. This is the wall, cried Regan. Beyond this mountain is the glittering heath and the goal of all my hopes. And the little old man ran forwards and scaled the rough side of the mountain and reached its summit while Siegfried and Greyfell were yet toiling among the rocks at its foot. Slowly, painfully, they climbed the steep ascent, sometimes following a narrow path which wound along the edge of a precipice, sometimes leaping from rock to rock, or over some deep gorge, sometimes picking their way among the crags and cliffs. The sun at last went down, and one by one the stars came out, and the moon was rising round and red when Siegfried stood by Regin's side and gazed from the mountain top down upon the glittering heath which lay beyond. And a strange, weird scene it was that met his sight. At the foot of the mountain was a river, white and cold and still. And beyond it was a smooth and barren plain. Lying silent and lonely in the pale moonlight. But in the distance was seen a circle of flickering flames, ever changing, now growing brighter, now fading away, now shining with a dull, cold light like the glimmer of the glowworm or the foxfire. And as Siegfried gazed upon the scene, he saw the dim outline of some hideous monster moving hither and thither seeming all the more terrible in the uncertain light. "'It is he,' whispered Regan, and his lips were ashy pale, and his knees trembled beneath him. "'It is Fafnir, and he wears the helmet of terror. "'Shall we not go back to the smithy by the great forest, and to the life of ease and safety that may be ours there?' Or will you rather dare to go forwards and meet the terror in its abode? "'None but cowards give up an undertaking once begun,' answered Siegfried. "'Go back to the Rhineland yourself if you're afraid, but you must go alone. "'You have brought me thus far to meet the dragon of the heath, "'to win the horde of the swarthy elves, and to rid the world of a terrible evil.' before the setting of another sun, the deed which you have urged me to do will be done. Then he dashed down the eastern slope of the mountain, leaving Greyfell and the trembling Regan behind him. Soon he stood on the banks of the White River, which lay between the mountain and the heath, but the stream was deep and sluggish, and the channel was very wide. He paused a moment "'wondering how he should cross. "'And the air seemed heavy with deadly vapors, "'and the water was thick and cold. "'While he thus stood in thought, "'a boat came silently out of the mists and drew near. "'And the boatman stood up and called to him and said, "'What man are you who dares come into this land "'of loneliness and fear?' "'I am Siegfried,' answered the lad, "'and I have come to slay Fafnir, the terror.' "'Sit in my boat,' said the boatman, "'and I will carry you across the river.' "'And Siegfried sat by the boatman's side, "'and without the use of an oar "'and without a breath of air to drive it forwards, "'the little vessel turned "'and moved silently toward the farther shore.' "'So thus far,' What we have encountered is these juxtapositions already, these little moral tales within the broader myth, this fable, this epic poem of Siegfried. Why is Siegfried doing this? Because he is a warrior, because he is driven by honor, by his own integrity, by his desire to face the dragon. For reasons that we will soon discover. But what is Reagan's reason? Greed, treasure, plunder. And yet, driven by greed <coughs> excuse me what happens? When they come within sight of the dragon, the terror. Reagan's greed is subsumed by his fear. Greedy people are often driven forward by their need to possess something that is not theirs, as if it's owed to them or they deserve it. (coughs) Excuse me, allergies today. And yet, when confronted with an obstacle, their first thought is not push on, move forward, overcome the obstacle, defeat the terror seize the plunder for themselves. Instead, their first thought is to turn around and go home, regroup, come up with a better plan, maybe recruit more warriors to fight. Greed is finite. It limits itself because greed is most often driven by cowardice. Greed is a side effect a consequence of believing that you are owed something or deserve something that you have not, well, earned for yourself. You have not come by it honestly. And in this case, Reagan leans into Siegfried. He depends on Siegfried, actually, to defeat Fafnir for him so that he can claim the treasure without having to do battle. And already then, like I said, there's an important moral tale here, which is that greed is not good. I know what Gordon Gecko said in Wall Street, but that is not true. Nor did he say greed is good. That's one of those movie quotes that is misquoted, like Darth Vader saying, I am your father. Luke, I am your father. That's not actually what he says. but this is what happens we see this all the time in our own experience that those who are greedy for gain they spend all of their time imagining how they will come to acquire these treasures and then what they will do how they will spend their treasure but they usually depend on other people to do the heavy lifting for them other people get their hands dirty or bloody in this case and therefore In this story, both in the Norse and in the Germanic sagas, there's a warning against greediness because there are other things that are going to come with Reagan's greed, as we are going to discover. And so there's a warning here. Be brave. Don't be greedy. Fight the dragon for noble reasons and not simply for personal gain. This goes back to what we've been discussing really for the past year or more on this podcast, which is when you are driven by a higher cause, when your goals and your ambitions are motivated by something greater than yourself, when it's not about you, there is no obstacle that you are not willing to face and hopefully overcome, no matter what the cost. But on the other hand, greed, avarice, envy, they lead to other even more unethical and immoral decisions. Because greed and avarice and envy, these are the ideas, these are the ethics of people that have no spine, no backbone, no integrity, no dignity, no sense of justice. It's just want, want, want. And yet it's a wanting that doesn't want to work or earn what it gets. And so Regan waits while Siegfried goes on ahead to fight the dragon alone. So the boatman asks Siegfried, in what way will you fight the dragon? With my trusty sword, Balmung, I shall slay him, answered Siegfried. Notice once again, before we get too much further here, you can already start to hear Tolkien and how Tolkien leaned into Siegfried and Fafnir in The Hobbit and even in The Lord of the Rings, but specifically The Hobbit. Just as with Beowulf and how Beowulf goes and fights the dragon in her lair under the lake, here Siegfried goes and fights the dragon on the mountain. But notice in all of these epic tales there's a dragon and there's a brave warrior who goes to confront the dragon in the layer of the dragon on the mountaintop, under the lake, wherever it may be. And I wonder if in the collective imagination of these people in the fifth, sixth and seventh centuries when these stories were first brought together, some of them written down in poetic form, Others simply passed along through an oral tradition until later. If there isn't some collective memory of a time when men actually went and fought dragons, open your imagination and just consider that perhaps there is a great deal about history that we know nothing of because it has been buried by time. And just to speculate for the fun of it, I'm not claiming this is archaeologically true in any way, shape, or form. I'm just speculating for the sake of imagining possibilities. So don't mistake what I'm saying here. But just imagine if for a second dra- dinosaurs were dragons and what modern uh, paleontologists have labeled as dinosaurs and all that is spun up out about dinosaurs, which is almost entirely fiction, by the way, all invented by Hollywood in the past century. We always have to keep that in mind that that is actually true. We don't know what the, dra- the dinosaurs looked like. We don't know what their skin was like. We don't know what they ate. In fact, when you go to a museum and you look at dinosaurs, those are models. Those aren't the actual dinosaurs. But just imagine for a second, moving away from the facts of the case to speculation. What if the dinosaurs were dragons? And what if men killed all of the dragons? And yet the memory of those epic fights remained and were passed down generation after generation. And every generation, as it moved further and further away from the original event, more and more those stories became mythologized. And then over the course of time, everyone forgot the original events that the dragons were real, that men fought them, that the dragons were killed and became extinct. And like I said, within three or four or 20 generations, because people no longer saw dragons and no longer had to fear dragons, they passed into the realm of myth and legend. Like I said, it's just speculation. I'm just having fun imagining possibilities, but when we talk about dragons and other mythical creatures, and we see these common threads both in Western and Eastern literature, at least for myself, I've always wondered how it's possible that so many different cultures have, well, essentially the same mythologies. Is there a collective memory there that is prehistoric? It seems an odd thing that both in Eastern and Western literature Even when you study South American and Central American myths and legends, there's dragons. There's warriors who go to fight the dragons in their lair. It's very interesting to me that these are common threads amongst peoples that had no contact with each other at these times in history, again, the 5th through the ninth centuries. Just something to think about, to chew on, to ask, how'd this happen? How is this collective memory passed down generation after generation and becomes mythic? And yet here we are in 2021, still reading these tales, still recounting these mighty deeds of these brave warriors fighting dragons and learning from them as they did when they were originally told. It's always been something that I've speculated about, something I've been curious about. Because I think the hubris of progressivism, this idea that because of where we are at in time in relation to people who lived in the ninth century, for example, we are somehow more advanced than they are. We're smarter than they are, wiser than they are, better than they are. It's often been called the myth of progress that we're getting better and better all the time. It's a false understanding of evolution, both Darwinian and social evolution. I think it's important that we humble ourselves when we read these epic poems, these tales of great warriors from the past, and remember that we can't remake the pyramids. We can't remake the Parthenon with the tools that they had at the time. So exactly how much more advanced are we than those peoples that came before us? And maybe rather than look arrogantly back at our ancestors, we humble ourselves and acknowledge they may have actually been our betters. They may have been superior to us in almost every way. And rather than claiming that we are more evolved than them, perhaps it's time to ask the question of whether or not we have devolved as a society and as people. And that the reason we go back to these epic poems like Beowulf and Siegfried is because, again, they're time-tested and they've persisted because there is something universally true at the heart of these tales that we can still learn from today. And I know, at least in my own life and experience now, because I feel so out of step with other men of my generation and I see, in my own opinion, how much, men have lost in the last century, of our masculinity, of our sense of adventure, of these stories which inspire and motivate us to step outside of our comfort zone, out of our safe little bubble, and to expose ourselves to trials, to challenges, to go out and prove ourselves to ourselves, to go on epic adventures and quests in the company of others, Who wish to share the adventure with us? These poems, these mythical tales that inspire generation after generation after generation of boys and girls who then grow up to become men and women who seek out similar paths, at least morally, at least in the sense of, again, stepping outside of that safe little bubble, taking a step out into the unknown, going on adventures facing our fears and our weaknesses, confronting our vulnerabilities, pushing through them to become better, to become, well, in my opinion, more human. I think stepping out of our comfort zone and pushing past these social barriers that are constructed to stop us from becoming fully men and fully women in the way that God intends for us to become fully man and woman, I personally think, especially in the last century, that everything is working against us becoming fully human. I think what's happened is that we are becoming dehumanized. We are becoming less human and more and more robotic as we are programmed day after day, generation after generation, to not listen to our spiritual mothers and fathers, to not take something from the example of Siegfried, of Beowulf, of the Arthurian legends, and so on. I think we are lesser than for it. I think we're diminished. I think we've devolved and we've lost the greatness and the quality of human being that is exhibited for us in these epic tales. So at least for myself, and I hope for you, it inspires you to go back and reread the poetic Ada, the prose Ada, the stories of Siegfried and Brunhild and Fafnir, of Beowulf, of their Aetherian legends. Dig into those and go back into the Greeks and the Romans. Go back even to the Persians and the Mesopotamians and the Epic of Gilgamesh and notice all of these stories have so much in common. And they all point us in similar directions. And yet if you look at modern stories and modern myths and legends, which direction do they point us? So back to the book. In what way will you fight the dragon, asked the boatman. With my trusty sword, Balmung, I shall slay him, answered Siegfried. But he wears the helmet of terror and he breathes deathly poisons, and his eyes dart forth lightning, and no man can withstand his strength, said the boatman. I will find some way by which to overcome him. Then be wise and listen to me, said the boatman. As you go up from the river, you will find a road, worn deep and smooth, starting from the water's edge and winding over the moor. It is the trail of Fafnir a down which he comes at dawn of every day to slake his thirst at the river. Do you dig a pit in this roadway, a pit narrow and deep, and hide yourself within it? In the morning, when Fafnir passes over it, let him feel the edge of Balmung. As the man ceased speaking, the boat touched the shore, and Siegfried leaped out. He looked back to thank his unknown friend, but neither Boat nor Boatman was to be seen. Only a thin white mist rose slowly from the cold surface of the stream and floated upwards and away towards the mountaintops. Then the lad remembered that the strange Boatman had worn a blue hood bestangled with golden stars and that a gray kirtle was thrown over his shoulders and that his one eye glistened and sparkled with a light that was more than human. And he knew that he had again talked with Odin. Then, with a braver heart than before, he went forwards along the riverbank until he came to Fafnir's trail, a deep, wide furrow in the earth, beginning at the river's bank and winding far away over the heath until it was lost to sight in the darkness. The bottom of the trail was soft and slimy, and its sides had been worn smooth by Fafnir's frequent travel through it. In this road, at a point not far from the river, Siegfried, with his trusty sword, Balmung, scooped out a deep and narrow pit as Odin had directed. And when the gray dawn appeared in the east, he hid himself within this trench and waited for the coming of the monster. He had not long to wait, for no sooner had the sky begun to redden in the light of the coming sun than the dragon was heard bestirring himself. Siegfried peeped warily from his hiding place and saw him coming far down the road, hurrying with all speed that he might quench his thirst at the sluggish river and hasten back to his gold. And the sound which he made was like the trampling of many feet and the jingling of many chains. With bloodshot eyes, and gaping mouth, and flaming nostrils, the hideous creature came rushing onwards. His sharp, curved claws dug deep into the soft earth, and his bat-like wings, half trailing on the ground, half flapping in the air, made a sound like that which is heard when Thor rides in his goat-drawn chariot over the dark thunderclouds. It was a terrible moment for Siegfried, but still, he was not afraid. He crouched low, down in his hiding place, and the bare blade of the trusty Balmung glittered in the morning light. On came the hastening feet and the flapping wings. The red gleam from the monster's flaming nostrils lighted up the trench where Siegfried lay. He heard a roaring and a rushing like the sound of a whirlwind in the forest. Then a black, inky mass rolled above him and all was dark. Now was Siegfried's opportunity. The bright edge of Balmung gleamed in the darkness one moment, and then it smote the heart of Fafnir as he passed. Some men say that Odin sat in the pit with Siegfried and strengthened his arm and directed his sword, or else he could not thus have slain the terror. But be this as it may, the victory was soon won. The monster stopped short while but half of his long body had glided over the pit, for sudden death had overtaken him. His horrid head fell lifeless upon the ground. His cold wings flapped once, and then lay, quivering and helpless, spread out on either side. And streams of thick, black blood flowed from his heart, through the wound beneath, and filled the trench in which Siegfried was hidden, and ran like a mountain torrent down the road toward the river. Siegfried was covered from head to foot with the slimy liquid, and had he not quickly leaped from his hiding place, he would have been drowned in the swift, rushing stream. The bright sun rose in the east and gilded the mountaintops and fell upon the still waters of the river and lighted up the treeless plains around. The south wind played gently against Siegfried's cheeks and in his long hair as he stood gazing on his fallen foe and the sound of singing birds and rippling waters and gay insects, such as had not broken the silence of the glittering heath for ages, came to his ears. The terror was dead, and nature had awakened from her sleep of dread. And as the lad leaned upon his sword, and thought of the deed he had done, behold, the shining grey fell with the beaming hopeful mane, having crossed the now bright river, stood by his side. And Regan, his face grown wondrous cold, came trudging over the meadows, and his heart was full of guile. Then the mountain vultures came wheeling downwards to look upon the dead dragon, and with them were two ravens black as midnight. And when Siegfried saw these ravens, he knew he knew them to be Odin's birds, Hugen, who is thought, and Munin, who is memory. And they alighted on the ground nearby, and the lad listened to hear what they would say. Then Hugen flapped his wings and said, The deed is done. Why tarries the hero? And Munin said, The world is wide. Fame waits for the hero. And Hugen answered, what if he wins the horde of the elves? That's not honor. Let him seek fame by nobler deeds. Then Moonin flew past his ear and whispered, Beware of Regin, the master. His heart is poisoned. He would be thy bane. And the two birds flew away to carry the news to Odin in the happy halls of Gladsheim. When Regan drew near to look upon the dragon, Siegfried kindly accosted him, but he seemed not to hear. And a snaky glitter lurked in his eyes, and his mouth was set and dry, and he seemed as one walking in a dream. It's mine now, he murmured. It's all mine now. The hoard of the swarthy elf folk, the garnered wisdom of ages, the strength of the world is mine. I will keep I will save. I will heap up. And none shall have part or parcel of the treasure which is mine alone. Well, now you know where Tolkien got the idea from Schmeagel. For Schmeagel from. Gollum. My precious. It's Reagan. And Then his eyes fell upon Siegfried, and his cheeks drew dark with wrath, and he cried out, Why are you on my way? Why are you here in my way? I am the lord of the glittering heath. I am the master of the horde. I am the master, and you, you are my thrall. This is important, and I hope you noticed it. I emphasized it on purpose. I, I will keep, I will save, I will heap up. It's mine. I am the lord of the glittering heath. I am the master of the horde. I, 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 I am the master. It's all mine. All mine. Remember. Remember what the raven said. Hoogan the deed is done. Why does the hero tarry? Hugen and Munin warning him. Fame waits for you in the world. If you want to be a hero, and remember the, the meaning of the word hero means protector or defender, it's not going to be here that you find that. If you win the horde of the elves, that is not honor. Remember, Hugan says this. Siegfried is warned by Odin's ravens. This is not where you will find fame. This is not how you become a hero. You do not plunder the horde of the elves because that is not honorable. You need to do something nobler. And by the way, beware Regan. And then Regan shows up and he is overcome by his greed and his envy of Siegfried. And now... His cheeks grow dark with wrath, and he cries out. He screams and yells at Siegfried. Who, by the way, is covered in dragon's blood from the deed that he's done. Why are you here in my way? Regan asks. I am the lord of the glittering heath. I am the master of the horde. I am the master, and you, you are in my thrall. You are my slave. You serve me greed. Look what greed has done to him. Look at what it does to a man's heart. It drives somebody insane. What is the better part of wisdom? The better part of wisdom is to not pursue that which is ignoble in order to win fame or to become a hero. As I've talked about, especially the past, what, since January, reading Nietzsche. Our ambitions should always outstretch our imagination for what we think is possible for our life. Pillaging the horde of the elves, even though you've killed Fafnir? It was Odin who told you how to kill the dragon. And it was probably Odin who gave you strength to kill the dragon. It was Odin who sent his ravens to monitor the situation and report back to him. And it was the ravens who gave you wisdom who told you the way in which you should travel, how to win fame for yourself as a true, honorable, and noble hero. And the proof of that is Reagan. Overcome by greed. Overcome by envy of Siegfried. Driven mad by greed. Why are you in my way? They were just friends. They were traveling companions. They were comrades in arms. Reagan led Siegfried to the glittering heath. And yet now we see Reagan's ulterior motive come out through his confession. It was about him the whole time, and Siegfried was just a means to an end. And now, it really gets bonkers. Siegfried wondered at the change which had taken place in his old master, but he only smiled at his strange words and made no answer. You have slain my brother, Regan cried, and his face grew fearfully black, and his mouth foamed with rage. It was my deed and yours, Siegfried said. I have rid the world of a terror. I have righted a grievous wrong. You have slain my brother, said Regan, and a murderer's ransom you shall pay. Take the horde for your ransom. And let each of us wend his way, said the young man. The hoard is mine by rights, answered Reagan still more wrathfully. I am the master. You are my thrall. Why do you stand in my way? Then blinded with madness, he rushed at Siegfried as if to strike him down. But his foot slipped in a puddle of gore, and he pitched headlong against the sharp edge of Balmung, So sudden was this movement, and so unlooked for, that the sword was twitched out of Siegfried's hand and fell with a dull splash into the blood-filled pit before him, while Regan, slain by his own rashness, sank dead upon the ground. Full of horror, Siegfried turned away and mounted Greyfell. This is a place of blood, he said, and the way of glory, the way to glory, Leads not through it. Let the hoard still lie on the glittering heath. I will go my way from hence, and the world shall know me for better deeds than this. And he turned his back on the fearful scene and rode away. So swiftly did Greyfell carry him over the desert land and the mountain waste, that when night came they stood on the shore of the great North Sea, and the white waves broke at their feet. And the lad sat for a long time, silent, upon the warm white sand of the beach, and Greyfell waited at his side. And he watched the stars as they came out, one by one, and the moon as it rose round and pale, and moved like a queen across the sky. And the night wore away and the stars grew pale and the moon sank to rest in the wilderness of waters. And at day dawn Siegfried looked toward the west and midway between sky and sea, he thought he saw dark mountain tops hanging above a land of mists that seemed to float upon the edge of the sea. What is the reward for greed? What is the reward for envy and hatred? Well, it drives you insane. And it drives you to your own death. Reagan, overcome by greed and envy, by the desire to possess what is not his, in essence dies by his own hand. Because he becomes reckless and rash, he becomes overwhelmed by emotion and acts accordingly. And yet Siegfried, disgusted by what happens, says this is a place of blood, and the way to glory does not lead through it. And so he says, I will go my own way from here, and the world will know me for better deeds than this. That which is noble, that which is honorable, is its own reward. It has and bears within itself its own reward. I think this is the difference between the struggle and achieving the goal. It's the struggle that matters most, not reaching the mountaintop, not finally achieving that success that you have striven for, Once you grasp the golden ring, once you receive the prize for your efforts, what then? Do you take on a new mission? Do you settle in? What do you do? For myself, at least, what I had to learn is that every time I wrapped my fingers around that golden ring, I was immediately hungry for what was next. That's why the heart is a lonely hunter, because it never stops. It's always on the hunt for the next thing, the next trophy buck, the next mountaintop, the next medal, the next reward or promotion or accolade or degree the heart is endlessly hungry and I do not believe it can be satisfied in this life. Oh, you have faith. Well, who has not hungered for more faith? Oh, you love your beloved. Who has not desired and prayed and hoped to be able to love even more with even more reckless, unconditional, limitless freedom? When you reach the mountaintop, who has not spotted the next higher mountaintop and said, there it is, there's my next goal. We can't help ourselves. We are naturally greedy for more gain. Whether it is a positive, constructive thing or a negative, destructive thing, we are never satisfied, we are never satiated, we always want more bigger, faster, stronger, more, more, more. Because we are more often, I think, like Reagan than Siegfried. We place ourselves as the sun at the center of our universe. And everyone and everything else is expected to orbit us. It's all about me and mine. It's all about the I. I want this. I need that. I crave this. I desire that. I want, I have the right, I'm entitled to, I deserve, I've earned. I, 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 I. And that, in my opinion, is what has destroyed countless civilizations. It's what destroys jobs and relationships. It's what can derail your whole program. The selfishness, the self-centeredness the willful blindness that is the eye. Do we love selfishly? Of course we do. We don't fall in love with people that repulse us and disgust us. Our friendships are based on the fact that we share things in common with our friends, that our friends offer us a benefit and we offer them mutual benefits. Everything that we do in life, every choice that we make is driven by one motive, selfishness. Selfishness can drive somebody to get clean and sober. Selfishness can drive someone to rob a bank. Selfishness can drive someone to sacrifice themselves for the sake of their family. Selfishness can drive someone to sacrifice their family out of self-interest. If it wasn't for selfishness, we wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. And yet, at root, selfishness is what undoes us as individuals, as families, at work, at school, as a society. Everybody has a grievance now, everybody's a victim, nobody's responsible. Grievance culture lacks forgiveness and charity. It lacks compassion. It lacks looking to the other as being more important than the I. We don't live for each other anymore. We live almost entirely for ourselves. And everything about mainstream culture, mainstream media, mainstream politics, it's all custom-tailored to build up the I and diminish the we. All that matters is what I want to buy, what I want to watch, the relationships that I want to have, how I vote, what ideas I think are good and right versus wrong. Everything about the way we live is designed around the individual, not the clan, not the tribe, not the unit, not the squad, not the family, just the I. That's why our society is imploding. That's why Western civilization is dying and in its death throes right now. We don't care about each other anymore. We say we do, but that's just because, again, there's a benefit for me in showing other people compassion. But I think that for those of us who lament the loss of tribal identity, family identity, those of us who lament the unraveling of social fabric, it's one thing to say that we are driven by selfishness, we are motivated by selfishness. That's simply diagnosing the problem. And the prognosis, I think, is to go back to these legends and these stories, to look back at history and to recognize for all that was bad, for all that was violent and destructive about these societies, these tribes, these civilizations, they accomplished great things together. They overcame great obstacles together. Together. Their identity was bound up with the clan, with the village and tribe, with the family. To go completely off in a tangent, as a pastor, what I have witnessed over the past almost 30 years of being a Christian and being a part of the Christian church is the devastation wrought upon the Church of Christ by hyper-individualism amongst the clergy and amongst the laity. Instead of the congregation, the communion of saints, instead of identifying as the body of Christ, instead we come to church for ourselves and we form implicit social contracts. We're all here together, but we're all here for different reasons. So we agree to get along for the next hour or two or three so that we can all get what we need from each other. And then we go back to our lives for another week. That's why the church also is imploding, and why in the West we have seen a steady decline since the late 1970s. It's why so many churches closed last year and never reopened. It's because people come into the church from their lives, they're a part of society, they carry the same cultural ethic, unfortunately and morality as the culture around them, and they bring it into the church with them. And rather than repent of it and recognize that perhaps that's not the best thing in the world to be hyper-individualistic and individuated from everyone around you, that this may actually be deadly to us as individuals and society. Perhaps the reason that the family has disintegrated and has come under attack in the last five or six generations and why churches are imploding, and closing is because we do not have a shared cultural identity. We do not have a shared communal identity. Whether you as a Christian are part of the body of Christ and not just an individual who comes into church like it's an old country buffet, or whether it be in your home. How many families identify now as clans? How many families maintain a tribal identity That family is more important than anything else on earth. Because as we teach our children, no matter where you go in life, no matter what happens to you, after your mother and I are gone and you've buried us, there is nobody in the world who will understand you, who knows you better, who was ready to come to your aid more quickly than your brothers and sisters nothing is more important than family because there is nobody that you can rely on more than family when you get in trouble because there's nobody who knows you better. There's nobody who knows what you need more than your family. And if you raise up a family based in that clan identity, that tribal identity, and you emphasis the necessity of forgiveness and charity, of compassion and integrity, of holding yourselves to a higher moral standard than the cultural around you, then none of these poems, these mythic tales make any sense whatsoever. Because yes, Siegfried is an individual and he's on a quest. Yes, Beowulf at the end is an individual who's on a quest. But all of these stories, they're Arthurian legends. They're all told about individuals who come to the assistance of the tribe, of the clan. They're not doing it for themselves. They're not Reagan, who is driven insane with greed. They are Siegfried and Beowulf and Roland and Gwen. They're doing it for the benefit of their people. They're doing it for the benefit of strangers. And I think because we've lost that culturally, I think at root, that's why our society is disintegrating. Is because it's just a whole bunch of eyes running around trying to grab what they can before they die. And if I trample over you, if I take something from you, if I demand that you make a sacrifice for me, so be it. I'm just here for myself. I'm not here for very long. So just stay out of my way unless I need you. That kind of selfish is destructive. It's deadly. It's no good. So to continue then. While he looked, a white ship with sails all set came speeding over the waters toward him. It came nearer and nearer, and the sailors rested upon their oars as it glided into the quiet harbor. Just like at the end of The Lord of the Rings. A minstrel. With long white beard floating in the wind, sat at the prow, and the sweet music from his harp was wafted like incense to the shore. The vessel touched the sands. Its white sails were reefed as if by magic, and the crew leaped out upon the beach. Hail, Siegfried the Golden, cried the harper. Whither do you fare this summer day? I have come from a land of horror and dread. Answered the lad, and I would fain fare to a brighter. Then go with me to awaken the earth from its slumber, and to robe the fields in their garbs of beauty, said the harper. And he touched the strings of his harp, and strains of the softest music arose in the still morning air, and Siegfried stood entranced, for never before had he heard such music. Tell me who you are, he cried, when the sounds died away. Tell me who you are, and I will go to the ends of the earth with you. I am Bragi, answered the harper, smiling. And Siegfried noticed then that the ship was laden with flowers of every hue, and that thousands of singing birds circled around and above it, filling the air with the sound of their glad twitterings. Now Bragi, was the sweetest musician in all the world. It was said by some that his home was with the songbirds, that he had learned his skill from them. But this was only part of the truth. For whatever there was loveliness or beauty, wherever there was loveliness or beauty, or things noble and pure, there was Bragi. And his wondrous power in music and song was but the outward sign of a blameless soul. When he touched the strings of his golden harp All nature was charmed With the sweet harmony The savage beasts of the wood Crept near to listen The birds paused in their flight The waves of the sea were becalmed The winds were hushed The leaping waterfall was still The rushing torrent tarried in its bed The elves forgot their hidden treasures And joined in silent dance around him And the stromcarls and the musicians of the wood vainly tried to imitate him. And he was as fair of speech as he was skillful in song. His words were so persuasive that he had been known to call the fishes from the sea, to move great, lifeless rocks. And what is harder? The heart of kings. He understood the voice of the birds and the whispering of the breeze, the murmur of the waves and the roar of the waterfalls. He knew the length and breadth of the earth and the secrets of the sea and the language of the stars. Every day he talked with Odin, the All-Father, and with the wise and the good in the sunlit halls of Gladsheim. And once, every year he went to the Northlands and woke up the earth from its long winter's sleep. And scattered music and smiles, and beauty everywhere. Right gladly did Siegfried agree to sail with Bragi over the sea, for he wot that the bright Asa god would be a very different guide from the cunning, evil-eyed Regan. So he went on board with Bragi, and the gleaming greyfell followed them, and the sailors sat at their oars, and Broggy stood in the prow and touched the strings of his harp. And as the music arose, the white sails leaped up the masts, and a warm south breeze began to blow. And the little vessel, wafted by sweet sounds and the incense of spring, sped gladly away over the sea. And also the curse echoed Reagan. And that is the conclusion to chapter four, the story of Siegfried. The story of how Siegfried defeated Fafnir the dragon. And if you noticed at the end, the undercurrent, the subtext of this tale is also about winter giving way to spring, but also you might notice the figure of the harper, Bragi, juxtaposed against Reagan. Who is the one? Who is the curse bearer? You have the savior figure, the messiah figure in Bragi and you have the Satan figure, the accuser in Reagan. What are we to learn from this? So much. As I, I said, I'll include the Full text in the show notes, a link so you can follow it for yourself. I am lost in the sauce now after reading this. When I read these things out loud, and this is just me wandering now, so you're free to turn this off if you are so uh, pleased to do so, if you're so moved. But when I read things like this out loud, especially when they're translated as this is by James Baldwin, who isn't even considered the best translator of these stories, but when I read them out loud and the language rolls around on my tongue, it's so rich, so meaty, so earthy, it intoxicates me. It gets me high, actually, to a certain extent. And I mean that sincerely. It's not just hyperbole. I mean, it really gets me high. It's amazing when you read these old Tales, these epic tales, not only how beautiful they are and how complex they are, again, going back to what I said earlier, the hubris that we possess to think that these old stories are primitive or somehow not as good as the stories we tell today. Well, if that's the case, then take The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and burn them with fire, because without this, without Siegfried and Fafnir, There is no Hobbit. There is no Lord of the Rings. These, to me, are beautiful, inspiring, intoxicating stories that call me back to a time and a place when these stories were told around the fire, in the Mead Hall, for example, in the inn by the side of the road as travelers and pilgrims came inside to get out of the snow and the rain. These are the stories that would be told by the bards and the old storytellers who told stories so that they could make money to support themselves. These are the histories that historians used to tell. And I think we are lesser for having forgotten them and not given them a place of pride and honored and respected them for what they teach us not just about morals, not just about how to be good men and women, and not how to, you know, how to avoid slipping into that which is satanic, that which is morally evil. But again, they call us together in order to inspire us to achieve great things, noble things, things worthy of being remembered by future generations. That's why we're still telling these stories. That's why we're still ripping them off in the present tense. Because I think especially today, you can go on YouTube and go check out The Critical Drinker on YouTube. He's one of my favorite YouTubers. And he talks about why modern movies suck. (laughs) Why modern TV sucks. Part of the reason is because we stand on the shoulders of giants, but we don't understand anything about why they wrote what they did why they created these great characters and these great stories. And then we essentially rape them of all that is good about them and all that inspired us to want to live out those narratives. And they vomit them up just to make a dollar because they're driven by greed, because they're driven by ideologies which don't fit the narrative. So they rewrite and retcon the narratives to fit their ideology, to fit their politics. They rape the stories of all that makes them great, because the people that are writing stories today are not great. They're not good. They're not inspired by these stories. They're envious of these stories. They're envious of the people who tell these stories. And in their envy, when they come to the table with their grievances and their victimhood, They become like Reagan. They loathe the great writers, the great storytellers. And they don't see, they don't see the gold that's at the heart of every one of these stories. And so they rape and they pillage these stories and they steal the gold. But there's no honor in that. They do not serve a higher purpose, they have no God who inspires them. They will not listen to wisdom and therefore they wander lost and alone through the world, living in the hell of hells, running away from the dragon, running away from the heroes, vilifying and demonizing them. And in the end, because of their greed and their envy, because of their grievances and their grudges, They will claim to be brothers and sisters to the dragon that we slay. So take inspiration from Siegfried. Take inspiration to be greater than you imagine that you can be. Go on an adventure. Challenge yourself. Set goals that outstretch your imagination and what you think is possible for your life. Don't just treat these like fairy tales, that these are for children. These were not written for children. They were written for us. They were told to inspire children, yes, but they were also told to inspire us to never forget why we're here, the purpose for which God created us, which is to be fully human, to be men and women of courage and boldness to not be overcome by fear and cowardice, by envy and greed and avarice, but instead to step out into the world, to seek glory for ourselves, to undertake what is heroic, to become examples to the next generation of what is heroic, what is bold, what is courageous, to inspire others. To dream, to imagine better and greater things? I don't know. We've lost so much. And all we have to do is open the book and start to read again and listen to what the past, to what our spiritual mothers and fathers are trying to teach us today. And they're warning us that we're walking the edge. We're walking that knife's edge between good and evil. And all we have to do is step one way or the other and either fall into the pit with the dragon or meet our Savior at the shore. That's all I got for today. See you next week, space monkeys. Peace.